For our scripture reading, we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians 13, we begin reading at verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all others, that if I come again, I will not spare, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you were it is not weak, but is mighty in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil, not that we should appear proved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things, being absent. Lest being present, I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss, all the saints salute you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures this morning. In the passage we read, there's a specific reference to what we read at the end. Uh, on the basis of this passage in all of scriptures, the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism found in Lord's Day 8. <coughs> there we read, how are these articles divided? 
and that's referring to the articles of the Apostles Creed into three parts the first is of God the Father and our creation the second of God the Son and our redemption the third of God the Holy Ghost and our sanctification since there is but one only divine essence why speakest thou of Father Son and Holy Ghost because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one only true and eternal God. Dearly beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we begin this section where we start to go through the Apostles' Creed. We have a Lord's Day that looks at the division of the articles before going through them one at a time. It looks at the Apostles' Creed as a whole. And it asks, how are they divided? And that there's some instruction concerning that. And the articles are divided into three parts corresponding to the three persons of the Trinity. The first of God the Father and our creation. The second of God the Son and our redemption. The third of God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Now the Apostles' Creed was written quite early. And we've taken note of the fact that in the early creeds, in our ecumenical creeds, the shorter creeds, we see that there is much about the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation, that Jesus is one person, a divine nature and a human nature. And we understand that there's a reason why it is historically that the early creeds especially set forth the, the doctrine of the Trinity and that the Apostles' Creed has a Trinitarian framework to it. Central was the question about Jesus Christ and who he is. That after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, after he poured out his spirit and the gospel was to go to the nations and that they spoke about the coming of the mediator, the coming of the Messiah that had been spoken of in the Old Testament. It was important to set forth clearly from scripture who is Jesus Christ? Is he really God? Is he really a man? And how is that to be explained? And that was central. And the church expressing the truth that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity and that he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, well, that leads to the question, you see how that's related to the Trinity. If Jesus is God and the Father is God, then they are two 
what? If there's only one God, if there's only, if they're not two different gods, then they are two what? And what about the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost? And there have been wrong explanations of that in the past and today. The church was guided to confess the truth that they are three persons in one divine essence, the doctrine of the Trinity, or as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, these three distinct persons, they really are distinct persons, are the one only true and eternal God. In the Belgian Confession, there's a specific article to prove this. It's one place in our confessions where you have an article that sets forth the doctrine of the Trinity, and then you have another article that gives proof for the previous article. And in that, those proofs for the doctrine of the Trinity, one of them makes a reference to the last verse of 2 Corinthians 13, which is a, a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. It's one of the benedictions that is often used today in our, in our own worship services. You find different benedictions in the closing of the different epistles. And if you go through them, you often see a statement about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. A statement such as that is often found in the epistles. In this one specifically, there's a reference to Christ, God, and the Holy Ghost. And this is given, this is cited, rightly so, in our Belgic Confession as a, true, as a proof for the truth of the Trinity. And if we look at it in its context... We also see how the truth concerning the Trinity is to be applied to our own personal lives. Sometimes there's a question about that. When you come to the doctrine of the Trinity, some may think, you know, the Trinity. First of all, one may think, how much is there to be said about it? There's three persons and one divine essence. How much is there to say about the Trinity? Another question that might come up is, you know, how does that apply? I mean, you can talk about all the different heirs that there have been in the past and how the church was guided to confess this in the, in the ecumenical creeds. But in our own practical life, how, do, how are you going to apply the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, there's a number of ways that that, that can be brought up. First of all, when we talk about the work of God within us, God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, and then God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And to bring up the importance of the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, what is that work? that the Holy Spirit does, sanctifying us. 
but also looking at it from the viewpoint of the saints communing. That when we're talking about the triune God, we're talking about the God who has fellowship within himself. And that he brings us into fellowship with him. The one who has fellowship within himself, covenant, brings us into covenant communion with him. And we, who have fellowship with God, are to fellowship with one another. And we see that right in the context of this benediction, this Trinitarian benediction. For in verse 11, it says, Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. And then it talks about us greeting one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints salute you, greeting one another, living in peace peace together loving one another there's an application of this right in the context so in other words to hear the truth concerning the trinity and then to go home and for there to be fighting say in our own family with our children quarreling and fighting and saying well did we not just hear about the trinity what does the trinity have have to do with getting along in the family and children getting along together. Well, it very much has to do with it. God has fellowship together. God has fellowship. Three persons, one being fellowship within God. What is the covenant? We're brought into fellowship with him. And we who are united in Jesus Christ... We have fellowship together. The benediction itself speaks of the communion of the Holy Ghost. And God says to us, be of one mind. Live in peace. The triune God calls us live in peace in our homes, in our marriages, in our relationships with the people of God, in our own churches and elsewhere. Of course, we know it can be the case that we have a, in our own family or other, others that we, that, that we know, that we've been close to. It may be that a brother or sister is, is, is going in a wrong direction. is not listening to, is not heeding the word of God. And we may be striving to bring a person, a brother or sister, to repentance. It may be that we can point to this person in our own thinking. We can think, well, this person isn't, you know, this person isn't endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. And how about that person? He's not, well, we may... It's one thing to point out to see others that are doing what they ought not, but each one of us is to look at ourselves and that we're all to be striving, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
God has brought us into fellowship with him. And the triune God speaks to us this word. And we consider this Lord's Day under the theme, a Trinitarian benediction. Looking, first of all, at the the three persons and talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. Secondly, looking at it from the viewpoint of their operations. There's a reference to their operations in this Lord's Day and also in the in our other confessions we look at their operations and there in that connection we'll make some reference to the spirit's work of sanctification and then thirdly we look at the the blessed people and how those who receive the blessing how they in their life commune together Trinitarian benediction, the three persons, their operations, and the blessed people. The doctrine of the Trinity can be set forth very briefly. One essence in which are three persons. Three persons, one essence, or one being. And you can put them those two ideas together, saying one essence in which are three persons. And we often bring out in that regard that that's not a contradiction. It's not the case that the Bible contains contradictions. And that we're not supposed to hold to God doesn't teach us one thing and then teach us the opposite. There have been those that have spoken of embracing a contradiction. And even though the Bible says two things that are contrary and we can't explain it, we're to hold to a contradiction. We bring up the Bible doesn't have contradictions. Those that would teach that God desires to save all human beings and also that God desires to save only some, that would be a contradiction. But the scriptures don't teach that. They don't teach that God desires to save all human beings. There are no contradictions in the scriptures, and there's not a contradiction here. God is not three and one in the same sense. One, and this we're referring to his essence. Three, when referring to the persons. So how would one deny this doctrine? Well, one would expect, looking at the different aspects, first with regard to the three persons, that there would be those that would deny that they are really distinct persons. There have been those that have spoken of them as like modes, but not distinct persons. The Father mode, the Son mode, and the Holy Spirit mode, but that the three are not different persons. Well, they are real distinct persons. Another would be to deny the one essence. And we'll speak, Lord willing, in a moment a little bit about that air of denying that really there is only one essence. But first, looking at the distinction of persons. We know from the Old Testament and the New that there really is a distinction of persons. The scriptures speak of that with regard to the work of creation. In fact, we sang about that in Psalm 33 just a moment ago 
We know that the second person is the Word of God, and the third person, the Spirit, is the breath of God. And Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and then it says, And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And in the act of creation itself, we see this idea of the, the multiple persons, that the more than one person. And we see the, the plurality, we should say, the plurality of persons. And we see that also in when God created man. That then we read that God said, let us make man, bringing out the idea that there was more, more than one person. In the Old Testament, you have the messenger of Jehovah, translated the angel of Jehovah. We understand that that's referring to the second person of the Trinity as the messenger of Jehovah. Again, bringing out the idea of a distinction of persons. And in the Nicene Creed, we say that the Spirit spake by the prophets. In the New Testament, of course, it's, it's brought out more clearly. And interestingly, in connection with baptism. The baptism of Christ is a clear proof of the Trinity, where the Father speaks and the Son is, is seen, and the Father is speaking to the, the Son, speaks about the Son. With regard to the Son, he speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the, and the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And then, of course, in the baptism itself, as when we baptize today, and we say, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And in the baptism form, then, we talk about the Trinity, which is connected to the fact that we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the, and the Holy Ghost. And there are other places, too, where... The doctrine of the Trinity is set forth. You can look at it from the viewpoint of proving that the passages that prove that the Son is God and the passages that prove that the Holy Spirit is a person and that he is God and that when you put those together, you bring out the idea that there's three persons, one God. But also passages like this one here in 2 Corinthians 13 at the end. There are passages that make known what's, that refer to what's commonly referred to as the economical trinity. Now there's a distinction. Sometimes in theology there are these big terms that are used that can be hard to remember. Like the distinction between the ontological trinity and the economical trinity. Now those big terms simply mean the ontological trinity just means the three persons as they are in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The economical trinity is not a different trinity. It's the same three persons. But it refers to God as he has revealed himself to us. 
that we read of God, our God is our father. God is our father and, the, and creation. For example, we read of God the son and our redemption. And now you talk about Christ. So you make a reference to God, Christ, and the spirit of Christ. That's what's referred to as the economical trinity. God, Christ, who is God and man, and the spirit of Christ, that the, Christ, the spirit was given to Christ, and Christ poured out the spirit upon the church. And here we have a reference to God, to Christ, and to the spirit. And that's pointed to as a reference to the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. And there are other passages as well that speak of that. First Peter 1, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. First mentions God the Father. Then it talks about the Spirit through sanctification of the Spirit. And then goes on and talks about the Son unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That was 1 Peter 1, verse 2. So there's a number of passages that will speak of God, Christ, the divine and human mediator, and the spirit of Christ, which has been referred to as the economical trinity. Same, still referring to the same trinity, but the trinity as revealed to us. Now, the distinction between the persons, what is the distinction? Well, only one of them's father. Only one of them begets. Only one of them is the son. Only one of them is begotten. Only one of them is the spirit or breath of God. Only one of them proceeds or is breathed forth. The distinction is brought out in an interesting way, in a clear way, in the Athanasian Creed, when it says, The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, and take note specifically with regard to the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Son is of the Father alone. The Spirit, the Holy Ghost, is of the Father and of the Son. He proceeds from the Father and from the Son. He's of the Father and of the Son. The Son is of the Father alone. But the Holy Spirit is not begotten, then there would be two sons. Neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding from both. And yet, God is not divided into three. Three persons, but God is not divided into three. Not dividing the essence, as we say in the Athanasian Creed. There are not three almighties. We speak of the almighty God, the Father almighty, the Son almighty, the Holy Spirit almighty, but that doesn't mean three almighties. One almighty, 
The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite, the Holy Spirit infinite, but not three infinites, one infinite. You talk about almighty and talk about infinite, you're talking about the being of God, one essence, one being in which are three distinct persons. Common error is thinking of the persons as parts. And we talked about that before, that the persons are not parts of God. You're not to take like, an, whether it be an apple or an egg or any object that has three parts, and say, well, see, here's an object that has three different parts to it, like the apple, the core, and then the, the skin, and then the part in between, like three different parts, when the Trinity has, that's not using a, an object with three parts, as an illustrate is not as an illustration can set forth the wrong idea that the trinity the three persons are three parts of god but the persons are not parts he's a simple being simple being is not god is referred to as a simple being in the belgic confession article one and simple bringing out the idea that he's not composed of parts And the three persons are in the one essence in which are three persons. That one essence, that there is one essence, means the three have one will. And that is one of the heirs that is being taught also today. And it's taught in practical books, too. It's taught in practical books that speak about subjects such as wives being called to submit to their husbands. That there are those that teach that wives are to submit to their husbands just as the second person of the Trinity eternally submits to the first person. We all know the scriptures say that the wife is to submit to the husband as the church does to Christ. But there are those that speak instead of the second person of the Trinity, now talking about him from the viewpoint of him as God, his divine nature, not from the viewpoint of Christ having a human nature and from the viewpoint of his human nature, he submits to God, of course. But these are, there are those that are speaking of within the Trinity, eternally within the Trinity, that the second person submits to the first. And then that's cited as an example for women today to submit, married women to submit to their husbands. There's not subordination within the Trinity. They're, they have one will. Subordination would involve one, one will, you know, having different wills, and one is being submit, submitting to the other. Three persons, one essence, one will, one divine will. And if somebody says, well, there are three persons, three wills, well, the will, when we talk about the will, we talk about the nature. One nature, one divine 
essence, one will. And you can see that when, when people instead want to talk to the person about the person, we'll take a look at Christ. One person or two? <laughs> He's one person. Okay, one will or two. If somebody says one will, that's, that's an old heresy, the teaching that Christ has one will. He has two wills, human will, divine. Goes with the fact that he is divine, God and man, bringing out the idea that the will, when you talk about the will, you're talking about the nature. That Jesus has a human will and also the divine will, but one person. So it's quite important to see when we talk about the unity of the essence that there's one will of God. Three persons, one essence. Now, their operation speak relatively briefly about their operations. They're mentioned in the Heidelberg Catechism here. God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. It's important that we talk about all three. And the Holy End, and we go through the Apostles' Creed, we talk about all three. We first talk about God the Father and our creation. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in that section of the Apostles' Creed, we will talk about creation and providence. Then secondly, God the Son and our redemption. And when we talk in that section, we talk about the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, etc. We talk about our redemption. We also talk about God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. We don't stop by talking about God, the Father, and our creation, and God, the Son, and our redemption, and then stop. And don't talk about the fact that the Spirit works within us and sanctifies us. Don't we still have a depraved nature? Yes, we do. We do have a depraved nature. We confess that. But that doesn't mean the fact that we have a depraved nature does not mean that there really is no such thing as the work of sanctification. The Spirit works in us. There, that operation, I should use the word, let's say operation, doesn't mean that there is no operation of sanctification there is the spirit works in us sanctifies us and we confess that repeatedly in our in our confession talk about fellowship with God and us having fellowship with him well first let's talk about God the father he makes his covenant with us in the baptism form we speak about how when we're baptized in the name of the Father, God the Father witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he doth make an eternal covenant of grace with us. And we're going to go through each person from the viewpoint 
of fellowship. Fellowship with God. This first person. Talk about God who makes his covenant with us. Well, the covenant is fellowship. He adopts us as his children or heirs. And children and heirs. And he assures us and we are comforted with the truth that our Father will avert all evil or turn it to our profit. Then God the Son and our redemption. From the viewpoint of fellowship, we look at the Son's work of reconciling us to God. He laid down his life for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He reconciled us to God. He washes us in his blood. The Spirit washes us in his own blood. He's freed us from all our sins, and we are accounted righteous before God. But we don't stop there. It goes on and speaks about the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. When we are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit witnesseth and sealeth unto us that he will dwell in us, sanctifying us to be members of Christ, applying unto us that which we have in Christ. Namely, the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives. What does the Spirit do? What is the work of the Spirit within us? We talk about Christ and our redemption. We talk about his work for us. Then Christ sends us his Spirit. What does the Spirit do within us? He works in us faith. When we talk about baptism in the Heidelberg Catechism, we repeatedly talk about, in Lord's Day 26 and 27, we talk about the blood of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. Looking now specifically at the Spirit, what does the Spirit do? What does the Spirit do in our children? Well, the Spirit is the author of faith. He works faith in us and in our children. And then Lord's Day 26 brings out that when we are baptized, and there's a reference to the Holy Spirit, we are to have our mind directed to the fact that we are renewed by the Spirit, sanctified, so that we more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. That's what we confess. That the Holy Spirit works in us and our children, sanctifying us so that we more and more die unto sin. That we more and more lead holy and unblameable lives. 
We still have a depraved nature. But God has given us a new heart, and the Spirit works in us, sanctifying us so that we more and more die into sin and lead holy and unblameable lives. That's looking at the three persons from the viewpoint of their operation. We see how practical that is. We not only talk about within God, the three persons, but also we talk about the work of God in our salvation. Creation, redemption, sanctification. And then our calling to commune. When we talk about sanctification, we commune. It is interesting. In this article, when it says the third section is on God, the Holy Ghost, and our sanctification, one might ask, where does it even mention sanctification in the Apostles' Creed? God the Father in our creation, I can see that, because it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So I can see that. God the Son in our redemption, I can see that, because it talks about the fact that he was crucified, dead, and buried, ascended into hell, third day he rose again. Where does it say anything about sanctification? It talks about the Holy Ghost, as I believe in the Holy Spirit, but then notice it says right after that, I believe in Holy Catholic Church. Sanctification that has that idea of making us holy. We lead holy and unblameable lives. And we go from talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit, and then we go to talking about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. And saints are holy ones. That the church is holy and the members are holy and they commune. They have fellowship together of one mind. They commune, they fellowship together. They live in peace. Now in this life, of course, we have a small beginning of the new obedience. But we do have that small beginning. A small beginning. And we do struggle to throughout our life with sin. And when we hear this exhortation, be of one mind, live in peace, well, we do see quarrels, fighting, disagreements in our families and in the church. We can, see, we can see them in our own families. That we're not always communing together the way we should. 
And in our families, when we say things and do things we ought not, then we go and apologize to one another. And we go to one another when, when we are offended. And when our children sin against one another, we often talk to them about how they need to say they're sorry to one another. And that there needs to be forgiveness. Well, we're also to do that in the church, too. We're to apologize. We're to forgive one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And that's related to this benediction that's spoken of here. The word of benediction is a word of, you know, the, when the blessing of God, especially when the blessing of God is referred to at like the end of a, of a letter or at the end of the worship service, that we refer to it as a, you know, as a benediction. And those who receive this blessing really are blessed blessed of God. And it speaks of, first of all, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Often, as was mentioned, often as you go through, went through the different epistles to see how they end, repeatedly you see something similar to that. There is variance from one letter to the next. But one phrase that's seen repeatedly is, a reference to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ or something similar to that. And that's the way this one begins, which also brings out the particularness of grace. And when people talk about common grace, a grace to those outside of Christ or blessings to those outside of Christ, here you see in this blessing a reference to the grace of Christ. God, through Christ, graciously works in those who are the members of the body of Christ. Then there's a reference to the love of God. You've seen elsewhere in 1 Peter, it's not always the case that you see the reference to the first person, second person, third person in that order. Sometimes the order is different. Here it speaks first of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked about how Christ reconciled us to God. <clears throat> Secondly, it makes a reference to the love of God. We know, of course, God in his love for us gave his only begotten son. Christ laid down his life. He reconciled us to God. God makes us conscious of his love for us. God loves us, and he also makes us consciously aware of that. He infuses into us a consciousness of his love. And then there's the reference to the communion of the Holy Ghost. The Spirit unites us to Christ. And we who are united to Christ are united to one another. And as saints, we commune. And communion of the saints involves all of us using our gifts for the advantage of others. It's like in the home, you think of how the father and the mother are using their gifts for the advantage of their family. 
to the advantage of their, of their spouse and their children. In the church of Jesus Christ, each one of us is to use our gifts for the advantage of the other members. That's the idea of the communion of the saints, which is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed under the section God, the Holy Spirit, and our sanctification. We're to commune together. One mind, one faith, one will, one heart. See how that's related to the fact that there is the one will of God. We who are united to God have one will, one mind. Distinct persons who really commune. And we're to bear with one another, patiently bear with one another, to care for one another, Pray for one another. Assist one another. Greet one another. There's a number of references to that idea of greeting one another. That we don't simply greet a few people that we tend to know well. We greet them. But we're also to see ourselves as members of the body and greeting one another expressing our, 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 our love for the saints. And it's good that we get to know one another. There's a number of references to this idea of greeting one another. All the saints salute you. And we are to greet one another. And that practice of us saying hello to one another and greeting one another. And often, you know, there's a handshake as a custom in our own, in our own midst of shaking hands with one another. But the point is that we do this cordially. Not merely as an external show, but cordially. And we see how this is related to the truth of the Trinity. That the truth of the Trinity, three persons who have fellowship within God. That he's made his covenant with us. We know and confess that the covenant is not an agreement. It's not a conditional agreement. It's a bond of fellowship and that it's unconditional. And we who have fellowship with God, who are united in Jesus Christ and who were engrafted into him, who have been saved by irresistible, efficacious grace, and who will never fall out. We're to commune together. Live in peace. Live in peace. And each one of us is to strive, to endeavor, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of of peace. In the trials that we face, that we go through, and when people treat us badly, we ourselves 
are constantly to hear this word. To remember that it is a reality that we have fellowship with the living God. With the triune God, we have fellowship and always will. He's with us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you. Be with you all. As we hear that word, that blessing of God, God comforts our souls. May we in thankfulness to our God commune with one another more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unblameable lives to the honor of his name. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and our Father, we are thankful, O Lord, for thy grace. We are so thankful that we do have fellowship with thee, the living God. We are thankful for the work of, of the Spirit within us. We are thankful for the work of Christ who redeemed us. We are thankful, O Lord, for the everlasting covenant thou hast made with us. May we honor thee and magnify thy name, and may our conversation and communion be to thy glory. Today, on the Lord's day, and as we go forward, Grant us that grace, pardon our sins, comfort all thy people for Christ's sake.